Hello and welcome to podcast number three. This is Mike Figgis and again I'm talking to my friend Ali Agala. Today we're going to be talking about the 36 dramatic situations for cinema. Ali, you've tried these? Uh, yeah, the cards mm. and I've read the book and it's a very interesting system. And uh, I was wondering how you came up with the idea originally. Fate and coincidence are two of the key elements in the book and they're also two key elements in my own life Mm -hmm. i would say that my career as a filmmaker has been totally guided by coincidence and chance Mm -hmm. literally being in the right place at the right time or in some cases being totally in the wrong place at the right time which then turned into a good thing as part of a learning curve so the basic story is this i had to deliver a script Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a deadline um, for a treatment, basically, um, and I was behind schedule, Mm -hmm. and the clock was ticking, so I gave myself, okay, by Friday, I said, by Friday, I'm going to deliver this, and then I did something that I always do, which seems odd, but isn't. I decided to do something totally mundane. It could be do the ironing. Or uh, sometimes something mechanical, I'll put some shelves up or something mm-hmm. like that. In this particular instance, I decided to tidy up my bookcase, mm-hmm. which was quite a mammoth task because what had happened was I had acquired over the last years a lot of books and they'd, I'd run out of bookshelf space and so they were piled up on the floor. And I, thought, I kept saying to myself, I need to tidy this up. So for some reason, I chose this. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I choose a mundane task is that it liberates the mind. Helps still the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not really intellectually challenging, mm-hmm. but it allows my mind to wander. By the time you then get to do what it is you're supposed to do, a lot of interesting stuff has happened in the mind. And mm-hmm. I came across this little paperback called The 36 Dramatic Situations for Theatre mm-hmm. by a Frenchman called Georges Palti. Now... I had never read it. Someone had given it to me, and mm-hmm. I'm sad to say I don't remember who gave it to me, but they did me such a favor when they did. So the book just turned up. You didn't even know you had it? or I was aware that it had been sitting there for some time. I picked it up idly, and I looked at it, and I started flipping through, and I saw very quickly it had a system. that with mm-hmm. Palti had come up with 36 situations that he felt all drama fitted into combinations of. And I thought, well, that's an interesting concept. But I started to look at it, and I had no idea what he was talking about in terms of his references of French theatre at Mm -hmm. that time. This was written in the 1890s. Oh, wow. Okay. It's an interesting idea, but it's up so theatrical. It's about live theatre. This doesn't really relate to what I do, which is I make cinema. Yeah. And and it started to highlight for me these big differences between a theatre performance and a cinema performance Mm -hmm. and so i basically got hooked Mm. um and the long story short of that moment was that i eventually i did tidy up the bookcase i took aside the the polity the little paperback and i resolved to to somehow continue exploring what it had suggested to me i then dealt with my deadline and i found actually having flipped through the book quite a lot Mm -hmm number of solutions to to the issues i'd been having with with this story outline for a script um so i thought wow it's already working i then contacted one of my best friends this is a man called walter donahue and i'm going to bring walter into a later podcast because he's the kind of unsung hero of the british film industry Mm -hmm. 
Walter now runs the film publishing element at Faber's. Oh, wow. Uh, and he was responsible for all those great books of, you know, uh, Scorsese on Scorsese. Oh, great. You know, I've got that, actually. Yeah. All the, uh, the, 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 what was it called, Projections, yep. which was a great series yep. of filmmakers on filmmaking, which I, I guest edited one of those. Yep. Um, a lifelong collaborator with John Borman. Wow, fantastic. Um, one of the original commissioning editors at Channel 4 Film. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I've known him pretty much all my adult life. Okay. So um, I rang Walter and I said, look, I found this book, the Poultry book, which he'd vaguely heard of. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think a updated version of this, which would be the 36 Dramatic Situations for Cinema, mm. could be really interesting. So he said, fine, go ahead and we'll publish it. You know. Mm -hmm. So then... It took about, I think, another two years mm -hmm. for me to write the book, to research everything that's in the book. And during that process, something really cool happened, which was that I did what I always do when I'm writing, so I use postcards. Mm -hmm. So if I'm writing a film, I will each scene will be a postcard. I put it on yeah. a pin board, and then I can move them around quickly. Go, that scene should go there. And, and I find visually looking at it very inspirational. Yeah. And so what I was doing was I made a postcard for each of the 36 dramatic situations. Could you give an example for maybe what could be a dramatic situation? They, they contain things like loss of a loved one mm -hmm. or rivalry between f within a family. Yeah, that's... Or conflicts with power, brave adventure, all of the basic tropes of all, in fact, of all drama. You all know, drama, yeah. Uh, going back to Greek drama. Yeah. Very much based around the idea of family. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the integrity of family, and if you break apart the integrity of family, you have a drama. Yeah. Again, go back to Shakespeare, King Lear, conflict. Hamlet, conflict within families. And when I was thinking about cinema, I extended the idea of family, because in the 20th century, we have seen pretty much the erosion of the idea of family in the West. The family unit, yeah. And that's been replaced by other ideas of family unity. It could be work family mm -hmm. or or military family, or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was very open to the idea of expanding the interpretation of Polti's idea of what these things were. Anyway, I ended up with 36 cards in my hand, and I, and I became more and more aware of the fact that these were like a pack of cards. Mm. Now, a slight sidetrack. When I was in my 20s, I read a book that had a huge influence on me. It was called The Dice Man. Okay, I've not heard of that. Dice Man was written by an American called Luke Reinhardt. So he wrote a book in which the principal character decided that he would only do things controlled by the throw of a dice. Okay. I think the book was published maybe mid to late 60s. I'll definitely check it out. It became a cult hit. There were many, many ideas of, of making a film out of it. Many studios, I or it was optioned. Was it one of those quote-unquote unfilmable novels? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued now to go back and investigate why it didn't happen. Uh -huh. I would say as recently as two years ago, I read something about Luke Reinhardt mm -hmm. and his life, which is as strange as his novel. Oh, he's still, he's still alive. Okay. He's still alive, yeah. Okay. But anyway, that had a profound effect on a, a lot of people from that era. There's a whole series of restaurants in London owned by uh, an entrepreneur called Jeremy King. 
Yes. I remember talking to him one day, and he came out with the fact that the Dice Man had been the biggest influence in his life. And in fact, at a certain point, prior to becoming this restaurant entrepreneur, he had thrown a dice, and that had taken him into the restaurant business. <laughs> so people of my generation... Mm -hmm would definitely know that. It's a great book, and it's worth, it's worth a read. And oh. it's definitely worth reviving as, as a film idea. Mm. So with this idea of fate and chance and so on, the other element in my life was uh, a book called the I Ching, or mm. I Ching. Of course. The Chinese Book of Wisdom. So again, as a proto-hippie in the 60s, uh, um, you smoked dope, you wore beads, and you read the, the I Ching. And... I still have the three coins that I used for the, for the I Ching, mm -hmm. and I do it maybe once a year. It's one of the best written books ever in that it's so harmoniously constructed, the idea of these hexagrams and using chants and so on. And then the wisdoms that come as a result of what you've thrown mm -hmm. are so poetically ambiguous that you can craft them to whatever your own situation is. I mean, if you're a merchant, you can use the I Ching to say, is it a good time to buy wheat? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the idea, again, of throwing these three coins has stayed with me all my life. Mm -hmm. One of the key things in the I Ching is the introduction written by the you know, pioneering psychiatrist, psychologist, Jung. Jung was totally into the I Ching and the idea of chance. And in fact, in my film, Suspension of Disbelief, I quote... Um, I yep. quote Jung, where he talks about suspension of disbelief, and he says he doesn't quite accept that. Mm. He uh, he uses a, an incredible expression for drama, mm -hmm. and he calls it participation mystique. Participation That's mystique. Very appropriate, actually. Yeah. yeah, okay. And his point is this, that if you're listening to a story, however fantastical it is, if it's any good, mm -hmm. within a minute or so, you are drawn into the story. And Jung says you are then become part of that story. You're no longer having to suspend your disbelief because you are in the story. You're invested. And also sometimes you're invested in the characters. Well, the way our brains work and the way we respond to words and voice and so on, we are very quickly sucked into a narrative. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be in the theater, but it could also could be if you're pitching an idea to someone or mm -hmm. if you're in the pub having a drink and someone says, you can't believe what just happened to me. And they start, if they're any good at storytelling, within a matter of, let's say, minutes, you are like, oh, my God, I can't, <laughs> what did you do? Well, you know, I had to do this or whatever. So all those elements were part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting suddenly, I've done all my groundwork and my research and I've got my 36 cards in my hand they're postcards yeah and the thought was very strong in my mind that I have a pack of cards mm -hmm. and when you have cards you shuffle them yeah and then you're suddenly into this Jungian I Chingian Luke Reinhardtian idea of chance mm -hmm. I thought I wonder how that would be I wonder if this could work and so um with the considerable help of my assistant, Tara, mm -hmm. we constructed our first prototype of the cards. When yeah. online, we bought um, a big box of blank playing cards, white playing cards, and then hand-drew the 36 cards. And then finally, we had a pack of 36 cards. Mm -hmm. 
and then you know I shuffle them, which I'll now do. So Let's I'm sitting with the, um, the pack of cards here, and this is what they sound like. Authentic cards, mm -hmm. and I'm, I've already shuffled them, but I'm going to cut them several times now. Okay. And you're going to be my subject now, so you have 36 cards, mm -hmm. and you choose three okay. to start off with. So I'm, going to, I'm making a big fan of the cards. I'm reaching across the table to Ali, and he's going to choose three. Right. He's taken one, face down. Second, two, two, and three. Three. So we have three cards sitting there. And now the moment of truth. So we turn the cards over. And card number one is, it says, obtaining. Which is and on the cards, what I've done is I've given a kind of precy of what each situation is. Mm -hmm. So it's situation number 12. And it says cunning, improvisation, ambition, the need to get something which is out of reach, mm -hmm. a sense of urgency, a ticking clock. It may be selfish, the desire to possess something kind of out of your league, but it also might be heroic, like a siege situation. You may have to resort to trickery mm -hmm. or force mm -hmm. to get obtaining. Smooth talking, diplomacy, eloquence, arbitration. Mm -hmm. But you may have to resort, also resort to seduction, spies, con artists, or feigned madness. Uh, Hamlet, you know. Uh, uh, in order to get good something. Example. Yeah, you might have to really pretend to be. So I guess an example from, I guess, a popular film for this, when I think of it, is maybe Wall Street by Oliver Stone. Yeah. You know, Charlie Sheen wants to get rich from the start, and it's all about sort of obtaining. And then sure. He meets Any story that is based on the idea of ambition, unstoppable am yes. ambition, obtaining. I'll do anything to get it. I will kill my grandmother, basically. Yeah, you know? that's a good one, actually. Mm. So that was number 12. Okay. Ali is now turning over the second card, and it says, The Enigma. This is a kind of get-out-of-jail card. <laughs> yes. Okay. The mystery, a task, a test, an inexplicable event which the audience can participate, can participate in the solving of. So, you know, so many films are based on the idea of a mystery, and, and the yeah. final scene in the film will reveal the clue or whatever, you know, whether this is a uh, Agatha Christie mm -hmm. or, a, or, a, or a more kind of, let's say, esoteric sort mm -hmm. of story. A puzzle that has to be solved for dramatic reasons, maybe to save the life of an abducted, innocent person, maybe to save one's own life, requires steady hands and calm mind. I always think of the... Um, the Laurence Olivier character in um, the Marathon Man. Oh, my God, yeah. When is, is there is an safe? enigma, but he doesn't know what to say. And he, well, is it, it's the Dustin is, Hoffman, isn't it? Yes. They're drilling his teeth. Yes, and he goes, is yes, it safe? He just keeps asking him, is it safe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or yeah, in, a, in a film that I, we talked about last time called The Conversation, where the ambiguity of what people are saying to each other and what's missing in terms of the text become 
the key thing. Great example. To win the love of another, you have to solve a puzzle. Yeah. It may be entirely in the perception of the audience, and the protagonists are completely unaware. This is an interesting point that came up, which is the, the relationship between the audience and the drama is that sometimes the writer can choose to inform the audience of the truth but not the participants. Mm -hmm. So we watch these poor innocents walking into a trap knowing that they're going into a corrupt situation as opposed to when we're with the participants, we hope that it's cool, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. So that, you know, authors and writers then get to play God Mm -hmm. in various ways in the drama by choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a writer, you have that choice. So we have now... Two cards. So far, it's shaping up to be very suspenseful. Yes. Hold that one for a sec. So, you know, it's shaping up like, actually, it's 11 and 12. So, obtaining, which is this you know, relentless ambition, intertwined with a mystery, an enigma, that maybe the person who's relentlessly ambitious is going into an enigmatic situation that they don't control that they're vulnerable to potentially and and part of the obtaining is that they have to now solve that puzzle. Mm -hmm. So those two are working quite well together. Card number three. Well, it's perfect. So Ali has chosen number nine, which is daring enterprise, subtext, brave adventure, a problem, a plan, high risk, linked with traditional concepts of honor, strong beliefs that the problem can be solved, often found in war stories, Mm -hmm. the loss and then recovery of an object, the Mm -hmm. loss and then recovery of a person, a loved one, and the winning of a loved one's affection. Mm -hmm. So once you've got that as part of the sequence, you suddenly think, well, maybe the ambition isn't the Wall Street kind of ambition. It's not that just going for the money. It's actually the ambition to win love. Mm -hmm. So if you made this a kind of classic love story, either period or contemporary, you would have, you know, the perfect sequence. Yeah. Then the next job would be to say, what sequence do you want to put these in? Is it ambition first and then the enigma or is it daring enterprise? In other examples that we we could talk about, that might be more pertinent. Here I think you have three very solid situations that that are kind of married to each it's, other. Yeah, it's kind of strange that it actually opened up like this, in this order as well. Yeah. Interestingly. But, for example, if you wanted to sort of change the type of movie that you were doing, you could sort of just do Daring Enterprise second and then Enigma last, or mm-hmm. you could sort of switch it around as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing would be, when does the Enigma start to make itself known? Yeah. You know, at what point suddenly the, you know, the, the brave, adventuring, ambitious person suddenly finds himself in a strange environment mm-hmm. and suddenly the rules are completely different. Yeah. And they're, they're not in control. Yeah. And clearly there's something. We love these um, sort of films where at its, at its most gross, something like Saw. You know, yeah. where to get out of that room, you've got to you've got to literally kill your best friend yeah. or whatever. You know, or like Squid Games. Yes, perfect example, right? Well, yes, it is actually this. This is Squid it Games. is this order. Yes, yeah. Squid, this is Squid Games because it is. the ambition is to get out of poverty yes. by winning the big lottery. Yeah, the enigma is a series of enigmas. The mysterious game and the yeah. daring enterprise is clearly. To survive, you have to be very bold. This is Squid Games. Unbelievable. Yeah. 
then you could add to this the idea that genre. Mm-hmm. This could be a romantic comedy. Yes, I was just going to say that. You could mm. sort of, and you do mention it in the book, that you, it's not genre-specific. Mm-hmm. You can sort of adapt it to any genre. The romantic comedy actually kind of does have this kind of, because the enigma would be, how do I win his or her affections? Mm. And the daring enterprise would be, you know, what that person, the protagonist, does to, mm-hmm. get, you know, win the affections. It could also be Star Wars Part yes. 10. I hope not, but because, yeah. I mean, in other words, sci-fi this. Yes. Um, make, it, make it future now or future way ahead. Yep. Um, it could also be a period film. It could. It could be Ivanhoe. It could be Robin Hood. It could be an experimental art house film. Yes. In the sense, what is the enigma? It's never fully explained. If you say it's something like Last Year and Marion Bad or other Alan René films. Mm-hmm. Um, it could even be a Jean-Luc Godard film, yes. you know, where the characters are behaving in a buffoonish kind of way, bouncing off the walls of of the tropes that they're parodying. Mm-hmm. You know? In other words, it's almost like experimental comedy. Well, that's what I was kind of referring to when I said you could sort of change it, or change it around. For example, if you put Enigma to the end or something, mm. it could be more of sort of an experimental film, etc., sort of more of a daring narrative, mm-hmm. if you will. Do you remember the kind of spoof horror film that came out probably six or seven years ago? Was it something in the woods or something? Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Where they're basically initially presenting the idea of the classic. Yeah, it's almost like the tropes of sort of every Texas horror Chainsaw, film right? ever made. Yeah. yeah. And then we cut to a sci-fi kind yes. of level where they're being the strings are being pulled by these kind of sci-fi gods. Yes. Okay. So in that case... You could do that, which is the enigma has an internal life of its own, mm-hmm. and we see them as and it's a it's a something that became very popular with spy films, for example, yeah, the Ipcrest file, where we find Michael Caine thinks he's being interrogated and brainwashed in a cell in Russia somewhere, mm-hmm. and he escapes, and I think he's in Camden town. He's been abducted, mm-hmm. and he thinks he's been transported somewhere, but in fact he's still in London. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it thinking oh that that's that's cool. I wasn't expecting that. It's also great how you sort of just came up with specific examples for every dramatic situation. I mean, mm. that must have taken you a while. As part of why it took two years, <clears throat> I became fascinated and I really wanted to cover as much ground as mm-hmm. possible in a book. Mm-hmm. And also wanted it to be readable and enjoyable. Yeah, um, which and it I, was. So at the end, what I do is uh, I, with my team, analyzed 150 movies and it's called the film chart. And mm-hmm. so, and I went from the Star Wars, James Bond type things mm-hmm. to much more obscure Ing- Ingmar Bergman type things to try and make it as Catholic as possible. Yeah. In a thing. So we get something like, let's say, Black Swan, mm-hmm. and we discover it's got 10 situations, and in the, it gives the situations, you can look them up. Blade Runner has 12, mm-hmm. uh, from, and then all the Bond films have a lot. Loads. You know? but then you get a film like, let's say, Deliverance, hmm. brilliant John Boorman Amazing film. film, yeah. Only has six. Mm-hmm. Um, and often something like an Ingmar Bergman film will only have three. Yeah. Because you know, it's really about one thing and yeah. a microscope on that one thing. And it's not really about plot development. It's about internal psychology. Hmm. On the Waterfront has 19. Wow, okay. Once Upon a Time in America has 16. And then a film that I, I really love mm-hmm. called Open Water... 
Yeah, very good film. Yeah. So this is a film about a couple who are not getting on very well, who go scuba diving. And Based they, on a true story. Yeah, and they get left behind, and they're in, I think, in the Caribbean. Yeah. And they come up finally, and the boat's gone. And they're just annoyed, and they start even having a marital row. If it hadn't been for you, if you'd been on time, you know, why are you always like, I was late, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to get really creepy. Yes. Because there are sharks. There you are know. sharks. Yeah. And, and it, it's really sad. It's kind of a brilliant concept because it's basically two people. It terrified me, actually, when I yeah. saw it, I have to say. Yeah, it put me off scuba diving <laughs> in yes. a way that <laughs> my friend the octopus, or whatever it was called, put me oh, off eating God. octopus. You know, so, um, How many does that one have? It only has three, and I'll tell you okay. what they are. There's six, seven, and 17. Let's look them up. Mm-hmm. So six is disaster. Yep. Fair enough. Right? Yep. <laughs> that doesn't really need to be. Uh, uh, my favorite quote in the book mm-hmm. from J.G. Ballard. Mm. He says, life is a stage set to be swept away. Yeah. And then we have seven, mm-hmm. which is cruelty and misfortune. Oh, uh, yep. Yeah. So you have a bad situation, a disaster, and then cruelty and misfortune. And the quote here is, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> the sharks show up. <laughs> then the sharks show up. And I've got examples, I've got examples, The Son of Saul, you know, the, the Holocaust movie. Yeah, that's something I really liked, actually, in the book, because you sort of just give yeah. specific references of situations. And another thing, if I may add, is that you mention in the book that the situations could be as small as yeah. anything, and then they could be as large as anything. Like another example for disaster could be the Titanic hitting the iceberg. Yeah. So it sort of applies to any type of situation, dramatic situation. And then 17, I chose, was called Fatal Imprudence doing something which seems lacking in consequence at the time, but mm-hmm. then the ramifications are vast. And then looking back, if only I had taken the left-hand fork, if only I'd been on time. Yeah. You know. This section at the end, which analyzes all these films, it was quite interesting mm. because I did it actually with Walter. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you were even involved at some point. Yep. Yep. And we all read the synopses of various films, mm-hmm. and then we all came up with what we thought the the fundamental situations were and that Mm. was very interesting for me because there were quite big variances in interpretation and i realized something very interesting about that that was entirely psychological it was how you read something you personally might be more profoundly affected by this trope this dramatic situation because it resonates personally with you Mm -hmm. whereas for me i didn't have that experience for me the one that resonated was this Mm. The point here being that any drama is actually much more subtle than this. It may yeah. contain all 36 in yeah. various percentages, let's put it that way. But it's a kind of rough guide. It makes mm. you actually look at the dramas and start to think about how they might be interpreted. You had to uh, adapt some of the situations, I think, from Polti's book to sort of suit cinema. And you had to create some new situations, didn't you? To yeah. sort of... As I mentioned before, Polti's situations were predominantly Mm family-based. And there were some that I thought, because of the diminishing of the, let's say, if not importance, but the fact of the family Mm -hmm. in 20th and 21st century culture, there were a lot of situations I felt doubled up. So I got rid of two or three. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, what's missing if we're talking about cinema? And I think, you know, we need to address that. So... I thought long and hard about it. And I came up, I think, with three situations, new ones, yeah. that were cinema 
centric. Number one was coincidence. You okay? And this was to do with the fact that the minute cinema and montage, i.e. editing, yeah. became a powerful entity, mm-hmm. we were presented with a unique opportunity to show visually uh, cause and effect. Yes. In theatre, we can't do that, really. We can only do it through dialogue and some very crude you know, live techniques, you know, yeah. going back to opera and so on. Mm-hmm. Where I, The perfect example I give would be the opening scene montage of a film in which an attractive woman mm-hmm. and a good-looking man are filmed separately. One is on a train mm. and the other one is driving somewhere. Mm train pulls into a station Mm -hmm. the car parks she gets out of the train and she's walking screen direction left to right Mm -hmm. he gets out of the car and he's walking screen direction right to left Mm -hmm. and we're showing our credits and so on at a certain point Mm -hmm. if they don't meet or say hello Mm -hmm. or at least pass the audience is going to be very very disappointed going to be pissed off like hang on why did you lead us down that rabbit hole yeah And so that technique very quickly is a way of narrative device for for really getting on with the story very quickly. Yeah, yeah. You can create relationships between images, which just isn't possible in theater. Or Yeah. And the great news about it is we're not actually telling the audience that in words, mm-hmm. but they are subconsciously absorbing that information. Yeah. Uh, therefore, we're into parallel narrative, mm-hmm. which is already a kind of huge improvement on the theatrical possibility. Okay. If we add some music to that as well, mm-hmm. something unheard of in, in theatre, believe me, I've been there at the National mm-hmm. Theatre and been attacked for adding music. Um, if we uh, add that, so mm-hmm. third parallel narrative, uh, then, you know, the streets are ahead already and, yeah. they, and they haven't even spoken. We've just had the credits, you know. We already know what's going on somehow. You know? Yeah, yeah, this man and this woman are going to meet or yeah. their stories are going to intersect. So the coincidence card Mm -hmm. um, is totally permissible in that way. However, there are certain rules. Okay. You can only play that card a a limited number of times in a film. Otherwise, the audience starts to feel cheated. The disbelief goes beyond, yeah. I mean, what? What do you mean? That was was lucky. Even if, for example, even if it was based on a true story and everything in the true story had been a series of coincidences, Mm. you couldn't put that in the film based on unless you said to the audience what i said at the beginning of this is Uh my life has been based on a series of coincidences Mm -hmm. that are almost unbelievable Mm -hmm. let me tell you the story (laughs) so i've in a way i've applied for my coincidence passport Mm -hmm. and it's been accepted yes okay okay what i would then do is throw in a coincidence that i wasn't aware of okay to completely fuck up my relationship with the audience and entertain them th- mm-hmm. through my lack of control at that point. Something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have those choices. They're mm-hmm. very interesting. So I start to then look at films, and I'd already been aware of this, like going, oh, come on. Mm-hmm. I'm in so many action films. Come on. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time. You know, Die Hard, for example. Yeah. yeah. And you realize that it's a kind of, it is a, a, a trope, a situation that is, excessively used yes. in order to just get to the next action sequence. Yes. The use of coincidence, though, is it's fantastic. You mm-hmm. know, uh, one of my favorite films that I actually, years I've wanted to remake in English, mm. 
was L'Enfer. Chabrol. Chabrol. No, I haven't seen it, unfortunately. It's yeah. really good. Okay. And originally conceived, written, and half-directed by Clouseau, who then had a heart oh, attack okay. while he was shooting it and Great. never got completed. Okay. With Rami Schneider, you know, it oh, would have been amazing. Yeah. Where he uses paranoia mm-hmm. and suspicion to create these kind of coincidences that are they true, are they not mm-hmm. true? You know, does this mean she's guilty or not guilty? He suspects his wife of being unfaithful, etc. Okay, okay. So anyway, that's the coincidence card. Mm-hmm. Later, we're going to go back and talk about K-drama. Coincidence is the most overused device in all K-dramas. And it's so overused that it's become an acceptable, almost operatic form. Okay, we yeah. Just, we, kind of, we know it's going to happen. We no longer get annoyed by it because it wouldn't be K-drama if they, if they didn't have 53 coincidences per episode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Second card was um, basically madness, altered states. Okay. Dream state. Dream state. Okay, yes. Yeah. And that was because cinema immediately, you know, uh, and interestingly, in its early years, yeah. when it got into bed with the surrealists and, yeah. and yeah. the Dadaists and everything. Benuel, yeah. Because with cinema immediately, you can do dreams. Surrealistic, artistic moment is totally permissible in mainstream drama mm-hmm. where a dream will inform the audience of maybe impending doom mm-hmm. or a certain dark truth about someone that is not being spoken but can be articulated in the dream. Yeah. So you wake up and, and you're suspicious of someone that formerly you weren't suspicious mm-hmm. of because you had a dream. Yeah. And and we're still in the tribal state of premonition and witch doctor and shaman, even though we think we're terribly sophisticated. Mm. People are superstitious. Yeah. And so that's that's the card that will deal with all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like I could say, a get-out-of-jail card in the sense that you throw a dream in and the audience will go along with it. Yeah, it is, it's a lot more interesting than sort of the coincidence thing, though, you know, because yeah. the dream... I always think of... It's not a film, but, you know, the dream sequences in The Sopranos, you know, which were always yeah. very interesting and sort of... You could... Different people could read different things into that. But it's very... As you say, it's very cinematic... It's very cinematic. And then the, the third one, which I just found, which I modified, actually, is incest. Okay. Incest is the most unreported aspect of, of our social lives. And I decided that it was a, it was a very powerful element mm-hmm. and something that was worthy of inclusion in, in my 36 version. So um, it's... An, very rarely used in film. Yeah. So that that's basically the cards, and I use them all the time. But you use them, for example, to sort of help you out when you're sort of trying to come up with ideas. For example, you mentioned a film that had, I think, was it On the Waterfront, that had 19 of those situations mm. in them. So I guess, how would sort of people use them, or is it you figure out your own use for them. On the Waterfront is a great film. It's an amazing film, yeah. For a number of reasons. One of the reasons that it's not only a great film, but a successful and popular film, and a film that's still talked about and feels modern, is because the actual story is very strong. Mm -hmm. So if you take away the kind of Brando, Mystique and everything, actually just the story, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a story of a struggle against her. It struggles with power. If I go through the cards now... yeah. Um, mistaken jealousy conflicts with power yeah yep. enmity of kinsmen yep recovery of a lost one yep 
disaster. Yep. Deliverance. Yep. Supplication. Yeah. There is supplication. He has to finally to Ava Marie Saint. Yeah. You know, revenge contained within the family. I don't know about that one. Revenge following a crime. Well, yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah. Obstacles to love. Loads. <laughs> Rivalry. Yep. The necessity of sacrificing a loved one. Well, yes, I mean... His friends. Self-sacrifice as well, yeah. No, but the, there is, isn't somebody killed that's close to I, them? I think his brother is... Well, Ava's... Oh, yeah, 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 killed. yeah, that's mm. right, that's right. Her brother is killed, yeah, yeah at the start, that's right. Uh, rivalry of kinsmen? Yep. The discovery of the dishonor of a loved one. Yeah, she discovers that he was part of the killing of her brother. Yeah. Self-sacrifice for family? The brother, Rod Steiger, yeah. The outsider. Uh, the priest. The pursued. Well, yeah. and Brando. And Brando, yes. Self-sacrifice for idealism. Yep. The core of the film. Yeah. Altered states, no. An enemy loved. Yes. 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 Revolt. Yes. <laughs> Abduction, no. Coincidence. I don't think they use the coincidence card. I don't remember. Don't Fatal imprudence. Uh, yeah, I think. Well, I he think decides to go on a certain course. Yeah. He gets yeah. Remorse. For sure. For sure. Uh, erroneous judgment. Um, well, taking the dive, maybe, because that led to mm. sort of, yeah. Ambition. Uh, sure. Cruelty and misfortune. Uh, yeah. For yeah. sure. And the loss of a loved one. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> that's there a lot. There you go. Um, and that's, you know, because the film is so rich. Yes. Uh, the, you know, Elia Kazan. Yeah, complex, complex interest in human being. I mean, his autobiography is one of the best film autobiographies. I, I would like to read that. Actually. Where he actually cops to ratting on his friends. And he says, because I believed there was a communist threat, whatever, but yeah. he's honest. Yeah, he is. And, you know, of course, famously on the waterfront is sort of a parable for what Kazan was going through and then... That's another way of reading the film, but it is. I mean, Kazan very interesting talks about when he was working with the actors Mm -hmm. group, all these kind of radical left wing intellectuals. He was a kind of set painter. He just wanted to hang with them because he was interested, but he Uh wasn't part of their elite. Mm -hmm. And he said there'd be stuff like he'd be painting the set while they were rehearsing, Mm -hmm. and they'd be having agonizing over some thing like. Why isn't that line funny or, you know, yeah. how can that work? And he'd be painting and he'd look over and he'd kind of go, maybe if you took a pause, walked to the door and said the line. And they'd kind of go, what? What's the guy painting this? He's okay. And they'd try it and it would work. And go, hey, not bad, Eli, you know. And they were very condescending towards yeah. him, he said. you know. Yeah. And aside from what actually happened and one's yeah. sympathies, it's something I I buy that. I buy that. I buy that elitism, that yes. snobbery. Many times in my own life, I've come up against that kind of elitism. Yeah. And I thought, well, just because you went to Oxford or Cambridge, you think you're somehow, you have the divine right of kings, you know. Or you think you can direct because you did you yeah. know, literature at Oxford. To be fair, that, that elitism, I mean, that's just, it's just a personal opinion, still kind of exists in the Western Certain circles of the Western left. I think left. it's more entrenched than it ever was. Yeah. But you said, for example, On the Waterfront has like a ton of those situations, but a, you know, a great film need not have that many of them. As you mentioned, sort of Open Water only has three of them, or no, Bergman's like, films yeah. don't have that many of them. That's a great story. Yeah. So if you have a great story, yeah. then you can do wonders with the psychology. Yeah. 
if you happen to find Marlon Brando as well. Oh, yeah. Ka-ching. Yes. You know, just rob the bank. It's fine. So you want those elements. I mean, audiences love a good story. Yes. Because going back to Jung and the participation mystique, mm-hmm. five minutes into On the Waterfront, I mean, it's so well-crafted. That's, yeah, it's amazing. You are like, and you love Brando. In his prime. And yeah. then, so it's a great action story, but then mm-hmm. he, when he meets this exquisite woman yeah. who's so vulnerable and fragile, yeah. their chemistry is amazing. Yeah. So, uh, then it starts to work on that level. Yeah. I mean, the irony about that film is that actually it's a pretty right-wing story. Yes, About taking is. down the unions. It is. <laughs> we shouldn't be loving it. I noticed that the first time I saw it, and I, I love the film, but yeah. at the same time... Yeah. Yeah. Another autobiography, if I may, that you talk about in the book is Buñuel's autobiography, My Last Breath, mm-hmm. which I actually did read after you mentioned it and I bought it. And uh, it's just, it's an amazing book. He was a master mm-hmm. artist. He was a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things that are admirable about Buñuel. One is that he would shoot films with such limited coverage yeah. that the editor could not fuck them up. Yeah. They were, they were, you had to basically assemble what he'd shot. Yeah. Great choice of actors. Mm-hmm. Incredibly sardonic wit. Yes. So humor, for me, is one of the most key elements in all art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all my heroes were funny in some way or another. He right. says things like, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have had three traumatic incidents in your childhood, you're... Again, you're set for life because you can just recycle them yeah. over and over again. Yeah. And he talks about some graveyard that he used to visit where the bodies, the graveyard had started falling apart and the bodies were coming out of the graves. <laughs> and he just loved that. Went with his sister and that was such fun. How he took on the uptight elitist surrealists who yeah. took exception to, I think, Large Door yeah. or Onshi and Angela. I can't remember which one of his two surrealistic films. And he said, okay, well, it's simple. Let's burn the negative. And make a public event out of it. And they went, oh, we didn't want to go that far. Yeah. So he called that bluff, yeah. basically, and, and won. Yeah. Very interesting life, too, you know, because, like, as you say, he, he had that time with the Surrealists in the 20s with Dali and Garcia Lorca, whatever, then Spanish Civil War. He's, he, he's outside of Spain, can't come back. Mexico... Working for the United States State Department at some point. Yes, yes, I forgot about that, actually, yeah. yeah he was, so during World War II, he was in New York, he was yeah. working for the U.S. I love his American films. I, I don't think I've seen them, actually. There's an incredible one, which okay. is quite, you know, deals with a lot of racial elements. Oh, okay. And set in a kind of, so somewhere in the middle of a swamp somewhere, uh-huh. with a, um, you know, a character who's black who's escaped from uh-huh. a gang and takes refuge with an alcoholic, incestuous man and his daughter, and the daughter befriends the guy who's on the run. Yeah. It's very complicated. It's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, my favorite story in his book is about his friend in America who could predict the last scene of any film by reading <laughs> the first scene in the script. And that had a big effect on me too because when you start reading scripts or mm-hmm. looking at films, for example... The last five minutes of the film, the germs for that last five minute need to exist in the first five minutes of the film, in my opinion. And really great films do have that, where there's this sense of a complete you know, closure or completion. Of, yeah. yeah. And something that was enigmatic and obscure but interesting in the opening scene, suddenly you go, oh, I remember now. 
And it, it allows the audience to be smart because mm-hmm. they're kind of, as they're coming out of the cinema, going, I was like, oh, I've just realized something. It wasn't spoon-fed to me, but, you know, this and this happened. You know? That's a very good point, actually. I never yeah. thought of that. Yeah. But I would also say that there's something about balance. Okay, so yes. I, I would say, you know, as a musician and someone who f- firstly studied music, mm-hmm. so I always sort of say that my idea of structure is entirely musical. Mm-hmm. I look at life as a musical, as a, as a piece of music, sense that because what music told, taught me... Mm-hmm was very simple, which is that you have a top line, mm-hmm. so call that the melody. Okay. Then you've, in the middle you have harmonic ideas, and underneath all of that you have some kind of rhythmic structure, which is either bass lines or drums or something like yes. that. And the combination in all musical cultures of those elements seems to produce a satisfying aesthetic result. Okay. So uh, when I started making films, as a musician, because I was also doing score, I would look at stories and kind of go, okay, here's the top line, here's, and this is the underscore, and mm. this is the, you know, mm. the middle bit, if you like. So in music, if you have um, an opening theme in a piece of bark or something like that, probably the resolution in the last four bars mm-hmm. will acknowledge those first four bars as a way of saying, just to remind you, and now we're going to put this to bed. Whether it's literally a piece of information or something like mm-hmm. that, or whether it's more kind of emotionally the idea of our journey is now complete, mm. rather than we just literally took a scalpel and, and cut at that point, which yeah. some filmmakers do as a, a, to make a point that I'm not going to resolve, I'm not going to land the plane gently, I'm just literally going to stop. Mm. I've tried that myself. Mm. But you do those kind of things in a way in opposition to a kind of natural law to make a point yeah. rather than this is an alternative way of doing things because I think that part of your responsibility as an artist is always to fuck up the system regularly yeah. before you go back to it with fresh eyes and fresh ears yeah. and fresh brain. Okay. I would just enclosures say that one of the functions of the 36 dramatic situations and the cards is a wake-up. So if you're a writer and you're running out of ideas or you just feel a bit burned out and you have deadlines or you just have the urge to write a story, rather than having always to delve into your own personal autobiography and your tortured childhood or whatever it was, sometimes you can just play it being Shakespeare by which I mean just being a good storyteller. And often, to give you three elements that are not from your own life, and say, okay, fabricate a story out of those three, you will, of course, quite quickly bring your own DNA onto those three stories. And they, and you'll want to make them your own, because that our ego functions like that. But, but basically, it's enough to get you started with your first cup of coffee. And then, as... Our friend Mr. Jung says, mm. participation mystique hopefully will start to kick in. But it's that idea of waiting for something to trigger something. And then, yeah. and that, you know, we're brilliant. Mm-hmm. Human beings, we do something better than any animal, which is we solve problems. Mm-hmm. And a film 
may well be the present presentation to an audience of a series of enigmatic problems mm -hmm. and the audience will participate in that because they want to see how that is solved at the same time they're they're watching they're participating because they're solving the problem as i wonder if they're going to do this i think they should do this you know so it's a startup it's a cup of coffee